0: The following is brought to you courtesy of the No Phony Podcast Network, home of independent awesomeness. Everybody to another episode of the Book Reading Podcast. I, as always, am Melissa, and tonight I will be still discussing the novel *The Feminine Mystique* by Betty Friedan. Tonight will I will be covering chapters eleven through fourteen, which actually chapter fourteen is the last chapter in the book, so we're almost done with our journey, which I'm very upset about. (laughs) First off, I need to thank all of my listeners, old and new. If you're joining me for the first time tonight, a huge welcome. And a suggestion, uh, I would go back about, when did I start this wondrous journey? I believe it was episode 87, so about a month ago, uh, and check out the first episode of the series entitled Important Women Who Do Important Shit, which is what I am in the middle of currently. Um, It features my best friend Allison as my co-host. Lots of fun, exciting conversations started via that that episode, so if you're curious as to what's going on, I would go back and revisit that episode. As always, though, a special thanks need to go to my family, my friends, and my amazing support system. Without you guys, I could not do this. Whoever you are, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. This week, lots of comments again. I'm super... First, like, so grateful to everybody who takes the time to leave a comment. My pal Vic from Pocket Change Productions on YouTube wrote on Facebook, Catching up on Brooke Reading. Halfway into episode 87. Oh, there we go. <laughs> With my pals Melissa and Allison and have so many things I want to say. I need to record a commentary track. Hashtag community. Hashtag parks and rec. Hashtag Star Trek. Hashtag feminism. Hashtag feminine mystique. Finished the episode, and all I have to say is I could write a book about all the things we didn't learn about women's history in high school or college. Great conversation as always, ladies. A, thank you a thousand times for listening and for loving it and for wanting to be a part of the conversation. B, to solve that problem, Vic's going to be on the show. <laughs> uh, obviously not this, not tonight's episode, but next week is the official last episode of the series important women who do important shit and vic is going to be featured on that episode with me so uh it's super special to me because then she gets to join that conversation like she wanted to uh she's putting together some great resources for the episode and also it's bookmarking a very special series to me with two very special women in my life so it means a lot to me that we got to do it that way so yeah this is going to be amazing On Twitter, the rant with Herman James, again with the gif game. His gif hand is super strong. Um, When he retweeted the episode from last week, he dropped a gif of the Wonder Woman a la Gal Gadot fighting fighting crime. (laughs) I haven't seen those movies yet, so I know. I'm terrible. I'll watch them. We're still in quarantine. Just give me time. (laughs) But again amazing gift. he has been consistently retweeting all of these episodes and dropping like appropriate and cool gifts. so thank you to the rant with herman james again one of my bros at the no phony podcast network two tweets from the people who have purchased my book again i need to shout them out and say thank you just because i can't believe that people are buying my book Uh, Jay Ray from an absolute nobody pod and the czar of the No Phony Podcast Network (laughs) and Sean from What Does It Matter, both posted pics on Twitter saying that they received my book in the mail and they're looking forward to reading it and I just again need to say thank you so much to you guys for your support. Um, I saw a cool tweet today that I really wanted to answer normally, like bigger groups like Podern family does it but the podcast movement some other like podcast hq they do it a lot they'll just ask general questions about your experience in podcasting which is cool but i don't answer them all the time but this one i felt like i needed to from the podcast movement it asked what's the best lesson you've learned from podcasting i wrote don't do it alone make friends join communities of like-minded people learn from them and show them that you appreciate and support them In the past few weeks, a lot of people, like I said, um, I'm starting, you know, a new podcasting friendship with Mouse and Weens, the ladies over there. Um, And when one of them, I don't know which one, uh, wrote the comment to me that she thinks it's always so cool that I like put, you know, remind my listeners that there are other cool things that they can listen to. Uh, That I'm always promoting my friend's stuff. That's important. That's how I probably got as far as I did because I found these amazing communities who started to retweet and support and like my show. So then they pushed Brooke Reading out to their listeners and they were like, hey, if you like this kind of thing, go check this girl out. She's doing a fun thing. Um, so that is like necessary so much and it's just kind, <laughs> it's just a nice thing to do, but also it's it's necessary in the indie podcasting and content community because who else is going to support us? Like we're do we're literally doing it ourselves. So I'm a hundred percent going to keep doing that. And that is my first piece of advice to anybody who is listening, who's thinking of either making a YouTube channel or a podcast or a blog, um, you know, I'm I'm excited about my the beginnings of my blog too, and I hope people are going on there and checking it out. If you're not, I will give you the as uh, the the website for that in a second. But uh, yeah, like find like minded people who are doing this, not doing the same kind of content, but like think the same as you. Like I don't think anybody in the three in my the network that I'm in or in the communities that I'm in do a similar type of show that I do but we all think the same way we all believe in the same things and we are all like I said of like-minded moral and ethics and I wouldn't be part of a group or align myself with people that do not think the way I do so yes so that's that (laughs) I'll get off that soapbox (laughs) um yeah so those are all the comments thank you to everybody who takes the time I super super appreciate it as you know If you personally out there would like to leave a comment, if you have a question, or if you want to make a suggestion for a future novel, you can find me on Twitter at brookreadingpod or via email brookreading at gmail.com. And, as I mentioned earlier, to find all of the Brook Reading-related content in one place, you can now visit www.brookreadingpodcast.com. If you enjoy Brook Reading and you want to find other amazing podcasts to add to your collection, check out the following hashtags on Twitter. W.L.I. Pod Peeps, Lady Pod Squad, and Pottern Family. You can also find other great shows, including Brooke Reading, on the No Phony Podcast Network. It is definitely five-minute rant time. Um, I haven't been ranting in a couple weeks just because I've been trying to reflect more and be more internal and be more mindful and, you know, use this time to, like I said, reflect on everything that's been going on in the world and try to put out some positivity out into the universe because it's definitely necessary but it's back to ranting time because I found this piece well I didn't find it pals on Facebook found it retweeted it or not retweeted it got it out there onto the Facebook and I saw it and I said oh boy here we go (laughs) it is a little bit insane to me when articles or pieces about like literally the exact same topic that I'm talking about fall into my lap but that's what happened So as I said, this article came to me on Facebook, and it was entitled, "Quote: Bishop, daughters should be uneducated so they are not smarter than their husbands." Basically, this evangelical bishop says that women shouldn't women shouldn't go to college because the higher levels of education they will receive will emasculate their husbands, deprive them of being the heads of the household, and what man wants a woman like that? Right? God forbid. Quote. If she was a doctor and had a high degree of knowledge and found a boy who had a low degree of knowledge, he would not be the head. She would be the head. And if it were the head, it would not serve God's will. I want my daughters to marry a male. Okay, that's fine. A man who has to be head. Nah, that's not fine. (laughs) They have to be head because if they are not head, their marriage is doomed to failure. First of all, for somebody who doesn't agree with education, you use the word head a lot. Um, secondly, that is a problem, obviously. It's so funny that I'm reading a book written in 1963 where you would almost expect that this is the problem, but this article was from like a year ago or two years ago, I believe. So the fact that that's still happening 60 years later is ridiculous. Why are, first of all, how dare you have the audacity to deprive your daughters of an education but then again go ahead and say that all women should deprive themselves of an education because god forbid they make the man feel small he the, why is there why is there a competition amongst a husband and wife partner which it's supposed to be a partnership both parties are supposed to give 100 percent to make a marriage work one is not the head of anything what are you the fucking irs i can't see this is why i need the five minute rant because i need to freak out Okay, so, within the article, there was another link to a Christian radio host who apparently thinks the same thing. As you're noticing, typically when I read these articles, I will give the names of the people that do this. I'm not even saying their name on my show. Their names do not deserve to be saved in the annals of the Book Reading Podcast. There's no way in fuck I'm going to give the names of their organizations or their own names or anything like that. So, um, some... unnamed Christian radio host uh, said that, quote, educated women make bad wives and mothers. He was specifically referring to, again, like I said, this uh, story is from a year or two ago. There's a congressman, Sean Duffy, who stepped down because he, his wife was pregnant with their ninth child. And he wanted to pull back on his work to help with the family. Um, His wife also works. Uh, She was a Fox News reporter. And with both of them working, they both needed to pull back a little bit to help take care of their eight other children. And then their new baby that was being born, who was already diagnosed with some health issues. So the husband doing his part, as he should do, because again, like I said, when a marriage is a fucking team, uh, that's what you do. So he was doing the right thing and saying, I need to spend time with my family because my wife is going to need me. My other kids are going to need me and my new baby is going to need me. So, this radio host said that, quote, and this is a long quote, I know this, but I need to read the entire thing. This woman is a selfish, egotistical woman, and this man is too beta male to make her do the right thing. Really? Okay, sorry, I just needed to pause there. This woman is a selfish woman. She has nine kids, and she's trying to be like a man. I want to be seen by the world as such a working woman. Women, God has given you the gift of being the assistant of the man, to watch over his children, to make sure things are well at home, to be there when the kids come home, to cook, clean, provide in that way. There is no greater job for a woman than that. And I don't know why these men would marry these women if they don't have that mindset. It's like being married to another man. It's selfishness. It's not love. End quote like I said, I wanted to read the whole part to you to highlight, like, not only the egregious sexism, but the lack of sense that any of this makes. None of that shit made any sense. But those were spoken out of a human being's mouth, who was supposedly somewhat educated, I'm assuming, because he's a man. But yeah, I don't, I don't understand any of that. That made absolutely no sense. However... While these two examples are incredibly extreme versions of this backwards misogynist mindset, it does align with some of the ideas in The Feminine Mystique. However, the major difference is that The Feminine Mystique, as I said, was written in 1963. These two accounts happened last year. Ridiculous. Um, as I say normally, I do usually... Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm not changing my mind on the year. Um, I will post the original articles if you want to read them, either to laugh at them and realize how preposterous they are or because you agree uh, with them. But if you agree with them, I think you're listening to the wrong show. I'm just letting you know that, which you should have figured out by now. I will post them on the blog just because (laughs) as a former educator um, and as a researcher and as a writer, you have to cite your, your... your research. And that's only, that's only good editing. So I need to do that. I will post them on the blog. I will say that this is where I got the two articles that I referenced in my five minute rant. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So my name is Paul and this here's between (laughs) y'all. Hey, my name is Paul. This is between y'all. And that people is what grinds my gears, Tom. And now, now, I definitely can move on to a much more fun, exciting, and relatively new segment still, What Am I Watching? Come on, Nanny. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. (laughs) Still watching Mrs. America, but like I said last week, um, I did actually finish. Um, I took some time. I finished all of the episodes... I'm I'm like emotionally saddened and exhausted a that I'm done and B the way it ended but I won't reveal that until next week's episode and again like I said at the beginning of this it's not really like I'm giving you spoilers because this is historically accurate and there are some pieces of the show that were just so brilliant like gems that you just and they're very visual too that I actually cut out of my summaries because you need to watch it and see it and like when it smacks you in the face, and if you're like me, you start to cry. Um, you you should have that. You should have that for you. And I'm not going to spoil that for you. But this week, I want to give you a summary of episodes six and seven. And then, as I said, next week will be episodes eight and nine, and that's it. That's the whole series. And I have actually been reading as to whether people are thinking that they're going to have a uh, season two. I mean. I don't think that's, just by watching episode nine and the way it happened, I don't think that's going to happen. It very neatly tied everything up in a bow, especially the lives and the, the future careers of our four main uh, protagonists. So I don't, I don't know if it's going to have a season two, but I'm actually like, okay with that. I'm, the, the, the season, the way it was, these, these actors gave their time and did such an amazing job and maybe if they were asked back they wouldn't have the time to take out from you know other projects that they're doing or whatever so i i don't want them any of them to be replaced with you know no offense but like other actors that aren't going to do as great of a job so i'm i'm happy if this is the only season we get of this but we do need more shows like this we do need more shows with more content like this so keep that shit up hulu and netflix and everybody okay episode 6 is about jill february 1975 We're still at 33 states who have ratified the ERA. They need five more. Jill Ruckelhaus is a Republican feminist who was brought on by Ford to ratify the ERA and head his National Women's Commission that he developed. Jill, Bella, and Shirley are trying to plan a women's conference, and of course Phyllis is trying to stop it. And Phyllis started law school. Stop ERA is starting to recruit more, so they start the Eagle Forum. They kind of extended out the Stop ERA movement to create the Eagle Forum. Bella is trying to run for Senate. Many of other congressmen and senators are taking to sleeping with their secretaries. And many of these young women have reported this behavior to Shirley, who is trying to put a stop to it. She is trying to expose the congressmen and senators, but Bella tells her that this happens a lot, unfortunately, and many of the people that she wants to expose are on their side, like on the side of the ERA, and the women's movement need these men in office, which is so backwards. Phyllis has a meeting with some southern conservative women who are, you know, have a a stop ERA type group, um, but like deep south, like guns and deer heads and like deep deep south. (laughs) Um, But Phyllis decided to obviously to get her uh, list of followers to grow, but also so like The Southern conservative groups aren't kind of, like, biting off of her newsletter and her ideas. She wants the two groups to merge. Jill and Phyllis meet for the first time, and Jill realizes that, A, Phyllis is in her element when she's talking about nuclear defense and stuff, which is her expertise, as we know. And, B, calls her out for using the fight about the ERA to build up women voters for a future Reagan White House, which is kind of what she's doing. (sighs) Jill tries to explain to her the actual importance of the ERA and how it ties back to women not being treated like pieces of sex meat, like what happened to her when she would try to talk to male politicians, and like what the secretaries are going through now. And this is when Phyllis famously victim blames and says that loose women are basically asking for it, and this would never happen to virtuous women. So she actually said that, like in real life, which is fucking crazy to me. Shirley and Bella still are butting heads about exposing the congressmen who are sexually harassing their secretaries. Bella just wants to sweep it all under the rug. Jill's husband might be on the ticket for vice president in the upcoming election, but when he was vetted, he wants Jill to stay quiet and basically not do her job until after the election because, you know, she's a hot-headed feminist whatever. This is a very frustrating episode. I loved it. I'm not going to lie. I like learning more about Jill, but this was a very frustrating episode. Now we're in 1976 in Kansas City at the Republican National Convention, uh, which was interesting to see both sides. I I thought that was actually very cool. The Stop ERA movement busted in with their new Backwoods members (laughs) and started talking to senators and congressmen trying to get them to stop the ERA. Jill was called by the, uh, by the caucus that she's part of, the Women's Committee, and tried to repair everything over the phone. Typically, Typically, Republicans at this time were actually in favor of the ERA and, you know, gender and sex equality in general. To which I said, what happened then? Because now it's all, like, morally still women are, you know, stepping out of place or whatever the fuck. The Republicans voted to keep their ERA going, so stop ERA lost. Phyllis starts to meet with Kissinger and Reagan's planning staff. Jill's husband was not picked for VP. Ford picked Bob Dole. Reagan's team tells Phyllis to drop the anti-ERA fight because Betty Ford supports it. And the last song in the episode as people are walking away was You Don't Own Me. And it was so perfect because that was pretty much the entire theme of the episode with, like, Jill being, you know, told that she needs to kind of quiet her whole demeanor until her husband was possibly, you know, brought on as VP, and Phyllis being put in her place. Everybody kind of, like, being told that they can't do certain things to end with that song. It was really good. Episode 7, Bella, who, you know, I went into this show only knowing Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, and now... I've learned so much more about Shirley Chisholm. I've learned so much more about Bella Abzug. And I love them all, but just Margot Martindale's performance of Bella is just, it's its crawling really high up there as my favorite performance in this show. So now it's her episode. Oh, hello, Miss Kitty. Oh, it's fine. Oh, she wanted to come in. Man, You can say hi to the Brookworms. If... wormies <laughs> wormies that's cute I like that what are they talking about um I am going over the uh two two more of the episodes of Mrs. America hey you guys can I just say one thing really quick sure um you guys don't obviously know most of that well but I think you guys should know how much how hard she works on these little things like all her notes like is she's so just so dedicated and lo- uh, I love it I am I'm really proud of you thank you that was a kiss. I you guys kisses, too. All the Brookrooms get kisses. Bye, friends. I love it. Thank you, honey. You're welcome. I'm a big fan. Oh, thanks. And yes, now little Miss Piper's here, and she can stay. This is great. Yeah, she's the official brook reading mascot. She is. She loves me. <laughs> that was awesome. I loved that. Carter is president now. Mrs. Carter got the 35th state ratified for the ERA. Uh, and we are in April of 1977. They need three more states, and that's it. Phyllis got pied in the face at an event by an enraged waiter, which I looked this up, and it actually happened. so insane to me. Uh, A lot of her kids are home. I think it's, well, yeah, it's April, so I guess it's spring break or something. Um, Her daughter, who goes to Princeton, and who is named after her, like legit Phyllis Schlafly Jr., which is weird, uh, seems to be becoming a liberal, which is not weird, actually quite awesome. Uh, Not awesome is that Bella lost the Senate race. She just seems so sad and heartbroken. And again, it just goes back to Margot Martindale's performance. She's so, so good. And she's just so, like, downtrodden and it's so upsetting. Uh, So Gloria and another friend of theirs are visiting her. And they bring her the good news that Carter wants Bella to run the National Women's Committee that Jill ran under Ford. Yay! So Bella, Gloria, and lots of other key women during this time including the woman woman who came to visit Bella, whose name is Midge, and who's a lesbian, are now running the National Women's Committee. Jill is still in it, too. And Bella decides she wants to invite Betty Friedan to be one of the chairs, but Gloria reminds her how caustic Betty is, and another lesbian on the committee says that if Betty joins, she will quit. Because if you remember, Betty was super divided. Uh, She kept calling, like, lesbian feminists the Lavender Menace, and saying that, you know, like, their rights are not the same and nobody's going to pass women's rights if they know that lesbian rights are, like, attached to the whole agenda. is super fucking weird. <sighs> but on the other side of the fight, everyone starts to revolt against Phyllis in the Eagle Forum, which is very interesting to me. Other people are starting to want to rise up. Rosemary is trying to take over. She's running for, um... Not anything, I guess they're like official, maybe like chairs, again the same thing like in the National Women's Committee, not really sure how it works. But the Eagle Forum creates like a kind of side hustle called the Citizens Review Committee which starts to sabotage the Women's Committee and it works. Phyllis's daughter is getting shit at Princeton for her famous mother so she changes her nickname. When Phyllis finds out about this she is hurt. Half of the Schlafly kids are revolting against their parents, which I'm sorry, I'm not surprised. Um, Phyllis, though, is starting to fall apart. I think she's going through menopause. She's just having like severe like sweats and she's just like not feeling well all the time. Uh, She had a debate set up against Bella and she didn't show up. Uh, Rosemary and uh, I think her name was Alice, the character played by Sarah Paulson, who is so amazing, but not a real person, I found out. So that kind of sucks. The two of them and one other woman who's part of the Eagle Forum board. They showed up, but Phyllis never showed. Phyllis found a mixtape that someone had given her daughter, and it had the song Cherry Bomb on it on it. So the second Phyllis started to play that, I lost my mind because I love that song. So that was great. Oh, Miss Pipey, what are we what are we hollering about? Oh my god. Guys, this is actually very funny. She's, the door is open. The door is like totally open enough for her to get through, but she's behind it, crying at it because she doesn't know how to leave because my cat is not that bright. Anyway, I hope you guys don't mind her meowing in the background. Um, (laughs) This mixtape notion, however, gave Phyllis another idea to sabotage the feminist. She mixes sound bites that she's collected from Bella, Gloria, Betty, and anyone to make it sound like they're saying bad things. And then she puts out these tapes, and they start to spread like wildfire. These tapes also bring out crazy racists and KKK people uh, to head to a convention in Houston that they're all starting to plan and talk about. Bella, in charge of what agenda pieces would be brought up in Houston, decides to remove the sexual orientation piece off of the agenda to keep her members safe. She's afraid of hate crimes and crazy people, which I totally get, but Midge and the other lesbian in the group are very upset. There starts to be a split in the Eagle Forum as well. It's kind of like Phyllis versus everyone else. Bella goes to see Betty. I really start to feel bad for the two of them in this scene. They are just being pushed out by, like, the newer, younger, more radical feminists, even though nobody's more radical than Betty Dan Um... Bella decides, though, that they do need to be inclusive and put the sexual orientation piece back on the agenda for Houston. Gloria's advice to her is instead of shrinking back because they're afraid of, you know, KKK and John Birch and and all these people coming to Houston to, like, wreck everything, she says they should just invite everyone to Houston. Just have a bigger push of people there and basically the more the merrier. So then there's this amazing montage of all these women getting their invites to the, quote, American Women on the Move convention in Houston. And I'm crying. But see, these are the types of visual things that you need to see. So, like, even though I told you that happened, obviously I didn't ruin it. You just need to go watch. Uh, A, quote, unquote, pro-family movement is started by, you guessed it, (laughs) to counteract the Women on the Move rally in Houston. Phyllis basically says that if, quote, other groups join up with them, a.k.a. the KKK or any, you know, hate groups, she's not going to object. Again, to which I say, what the fuck? Like, are you kidding me? Okay, so those are the two episodes I just watched. I do need to highlight one more article, and being that there's no biography this week, we have the time. Uh, Again, just flipping around on the social meds, I find an article in the Los Angeles Times entitled... Quote, Mrs. America's Uzo Aduba on the moment she saw Shirley Chisholm without her wig. And it was written by a Los Angeles Times staff member on June 16th. So it was only a few days ago. This article clues us in a bit as to Aduba's research and respect and admiration for Chisholm and her preparation for playing her. This also introduced me to the documentary Chisholm 72 Unbought and Unbossed. This is a documentary about the presidential campaign of Shirley Chisholm, including interviews with her, her staff, other politicians, and authors of the time period. This was released in 2004, which was only a year before she passed away. This documentary was directed by Shola Lynch, has a 7.3 rating on IMDb, and was so good. So obviously we're still under What Am I Watching because I just watched this this week. It was amazing. I really enjoyed watching it. I loved, loved, loved seeing footage from that period, especially just after watching Mrs. America and realizing, again, I know I'm constantly talking about how good these actresses are, but like Uzo Aduba must have studied Chisholm hard because her mannerisms, her voice, the way she moves, it's just, it's so on par. It's so perfect. Anyway, on to learning stuff. (laughs) During the race... Shirley and her team were really pushing the people to get out to register and vote, especially young people and especially members of the black community. She was also primarily seen educating young people. And in one scene, she was speaking to a bunch of school-aged children. And as they left, she was shaking their hands and telling them to keep up with their education and make something of themselves because she was doing this for them. She was paving the way for them and opening doors for them. Just awesome. Another thing I found really interesting was we see in the show Mrs. America that in the beginning, the National Women's Caucus was completely behind Shirley, but then when it came down to brass tacks, they didn't back her anymore. They also started to split up white versus black feminists, straight versus gay feminists, etc. According to this documentary, so many members of the black community across the country came together to back Chisholm with her campaign, as well as the recruitment of newly registered voters. The Black Panther Party, for a time, joined up with the NAACP to take on voter registration. The reason I highlight that part of the documentary is because the Black community was like, we need to go out there and support our candidate. Why couldn't the women's community go ahead and do the same thing? That was a little annoying to me because I'm like, ladies, (laughs) put your bullshit away. And back, not only your friend, but your associate, your congressperson that I'm sure you voted for when she ran for Congress. So why are you scared to vote for her for president? Why are you scared to push her through? Because you know that, like, especially her platform, she was true. She was sincere. She said, like, you know, I'm not just the the candidate for the black community. I'm not just the candidate for the women's movement. I'm the candidate for America. And I know we need these changes and I'm the one who's going to fucking make them happen. So if the women's movement really needed somebody to make change, why are you not supporting her? Like at first you're supporting her because you're like, Oh, she's our friend and she's part of the caucus. But then when you, like I said, when the shit really hit the fan, most of them backed away. Bella first backed away. Like that's, it just wasn't cool. Was very impressed to see two extreme black movements come together and kind of forget whatever differences that they had with each other to support her and to support voter voter registration. But the women's circuits couldn't really do the same thing, really didn't have that mobilization. So that was kind of upsetting. But you should really check this documentary out. I give it five enthusiastic thumbs up um, out of five. (laughs) Um, But one thing that obviously made me super sad was that I look back on my education in school and I realize how many holes were in it. Uh, like, I should have been learning about her, and I should have been learning about Bella, and I should have been learning about Betty Friedan in school, because they were such a major part of the political movement of the 1970s, early 70s, but I only learned about Nixon and Watergate. And even that wasn't a whole lot. Like, ridiculous. And I also guess I should tell you that this is on Amazon Prime, so if you have that, you don't have to rent it, you don't have to pay for it, it's free, so what other reason do you need to watch it? I mean, go fucking check it out there you go (laughs) All right, now we're moving on to a promo break Um, I do need to take a quick break but we're going to listen to a promo from one of my pals at the Lady Pod Squad I hope you enjoy it check out their show if you are so inclined and I will be right back after the promo break do you need more women in your life? then hop on over to Her Moment in History the podcast your weekly dose of women past and present real and fictional salty and sweet Grace and Michelle eavesdrop on our conversations about the famous and the not-so-famous female-identifying peeps that you may or may not have heard of. Giving her her moment in history. Available on most streaming sites. Bye! Bye. And I'm back for the meat of the episode, as I always say. Uh, now I will be covering chapters 11 through 14 of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, published in 1963. Chapter 11 is entitled The Sex Seekers. When Betty was interviewing women about, quote, the problem with no name, never having brought up sex, the answers were starting to be very, very sex-based. These women had many affairs, but still couldn't find what they were looking for. Quote, in terms of the feminine mystique, if a woman feels a sense of personal emptiness, if she is unfulfilled, the cause must be sexual. But then why doesn't sex ever satisfy her? Page 309. There is more sex in the media and advertising, but this is equating to less sex amongst actual people. <laughs> Through the women thinking that sex is their problem, they become so obsessed with it, but the men are pulling away more and more. With more female promiscuity uh, being discussed, more men at the time are also coming out as gay, and this is being reasoned as that the mother son, too close Freudian bond, which I don't know about all that. Um, but also low self-esteem because the the bonds that the men are creating with other men are not love-based, they're just sex-based. A lot of this promiscuity is being chalked up to just sex without love, uh, but also trying to start adult life way too early. The problems that stem from that are all based on the fact that these kids are not emotionally mature enough to handle these adult lives that they're trying to jump into. They're getting married and pregnant at 18, 19, And making them think that they're ready to do that, to grow up and play house. But when they actually do it and they realize that they're not ready, they don't know what the hell to do. Chapter 12. Progressive dehumanization and the comfortable concentration camp. This was a weird chapter. um, And I'll tell you why when I get to the part. But, yeah. So, stemming off of the idea in chapter 11 that the high school and college age kids of this generation have been smothered by their mothers has caused a lackadaisical attitude in them where they care about nothing. Educators saw this in that not only were they not interested in their studies, and they blamed that on their professors. They were not interested in creating change through committees or activism in college, where that kind of, you know, usually fosters itself. Quote, The educators at first blamed this on the caution and conservatism of the McCarthy era, et cetera, et cetera. This makes sense to me, because they saw the kids saw what was happening to their parents if they bought the, quote, wrong book, or went to the, quote, wrong meeting. It was manifesting physically, too. Kids were eating less, boys were growing out their hair and their beards, Uh, the beatniks arose from this time period, as did lots of other countercultures, more kids were having sex earlier, as we talked about. Obviously, everyone's curiosity arose as to why this was happening to boys, though, since this kind of passivity and apathy were expected in girls. Another psychologist that Friedan spoke to had two theories about kids, especially boys, developed as adults due to their infantilism as children. In their relationships as adults, they became noncommittal, as though they were just playing a role, or they were living vicariously through something or someone else. These two methods are used to evade their personal growth. In women, this inability to handle things, quote, like a grown-up, caused severe and physical severe physical and emotional maladies, few resorting to suicide. More typically, women were suffering ulcers, depression, all kinds of stuff. This also has taken a major toll on their kids as well, obviously. Young kids were being put into therapy, more often boys, because they would misbehave in school, or they wouldn't read at the age that they were supposed to, or throw tantrums when their mother dropped them off at school. To sum up, the real thesis behind this whole chapter is Quote, the symbiotic love or permissiveness which has been the translation of mother love during the years of the feminine mystique is not enough to create a social conscience and strength of character in a child. Women who don't know who they are and can't separate themselves and find themselves were going to have kids in the same situation. Funnily enough, lots of the cases and discussions were from Bergen County, New Jersey in this chapter. Uh, yeah. No shit. (laughs) Then the end of the chapter gets really real. Betty goes on a tear about how nothing is going to be solved unless the feminine mystique is shattered and women have to strengthen themselves and we have to stop blaming mothers and allow women to grow as human beings. She then does compare the passivity and acceptance of housewives to those prisoners in the concentration camps who did the same thing. This is where the title came from. The people who were stripped down so far that they saw no reason to fight back or even just to stay alive. Both are examples, albeit one much more extreme, of dehumanization. Quote, we have gone on too long blaming or pitying the mothers who devour their children, who sow the seeds of progressive dehumanization, because they have never grown to full humanity themselves. Page 365. Chapter 13, The Forfeited Self. This chapter talks about growing as a person involves finding your independence. Quote, it is the growing despair of women who have forfeited their own existence, although by doing so they may have also evaded that lonely, frightened feeling that always comes with freedom. More psychological study in this chapter, especially about how humans can see their lives, including way years in the past to learn from and way, way, way years in the future to think about. As opposed to, like, dogs who can only see, like, an hour behind and an hour in front of them. Uh, I also started to notice that, in this discussion, the terms masculine and feminine were not as useful in describing the the types of personalities that they needed to discuss. Rather, men and women are referred to as high dominance or low dominance. High dominance is like Ferdinand herself, or Bella, or Shirley. Quote, The feminine mystique implies a choice between being a woman or risking the pains of human growth. Page 381. Being self-actualized, as they continue to call it, or truly equal, confident, well-rounded, benefits all aspects of life, but so few women were actually achieving it. Quote, among the public figures included in his study, Professor Maslow was able to find only two women who had actually fulfilled themselves. Eleanor Roosevelt. Roosevelt? Not Roosevelt. Roosevelt. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, and Jane Adams. The men included Lincoln, Jefferson, Einstein, Freud, George Washington Carver, Debs, Schweitzer, Chrysler, uh, Goethe, I, th- I don't know how to pronounce his name at all, but y'all know who I mean, the author, Thoreau, William James, Spinoza, Whitman, Franklin Roosevelt, and Beethoven. Page 387. Then the results of an intensive Kinsey study are analyzed, comparing women of age during the 1920s, versus the women that come after them quote the identity crisis for women did not begin in America until the fire and strength and ability of the pioneer women were no longer needed no longer used in the middle class homes of the eastern and midwestern cities when the pioneering was done and men began to build the new society in industries and professions outside the home page 404 and chapter 14 this is it for the evening folks A new life plan for women. Quote, to face the problem is not to solve it. But once a woman faces it, as women are doing today all over America without much help from the experts, once she asks herself, what do I want to do? She begins to find her own answers. Page 407. Thank God. (laughs) Betty is talking to all of these women, some of whom are figuring it out and taking themselves back some of whom are on their way to doing so, and some who still can't do it but know they need to. Quote, Even a very young woman today must think of herself as a human being first, not as a mother with time on her hands, and make a life plan in terms of her own abilities, a commitment of her own to society, with which her commitments as a wife and mother can be integrated. Page 414. That's exactly it. That's exactly what I think she's been leading up to this whole time. Obviously, searching for and working at, you know, your thing, whatever that is, came with roadblocks. Some husbands resented it. Friends would discourage you. Your religious or cultural upbringing were not really open-minded with that whole idea. But most women plowed through anyway. Quote, for the women I interviewed who had suffered and solved the problem that has no name, to fulfill an ambition of their own, long buried or brand new, to work at top capacity, To have a sense of achievement was like finding a missing piece in the puzzle of their lives. Page 430. The problem was taking a toll physically and mentally on women. In order to attempt to solve this problem and not just write or talk about it, Betty came up with a plan. Quote, What is needed now is a national educational program, similar to the GI Bill, for women who seriously want to continue or resume their education and who are willing to commit themselves to its use in a profession the bill would provide properly qualified women with tuition fees, plus an additional, an additional subsidy for books, childcare, etc. Page 446. One more quote that I felt truly encapsulates the theme of this book is, quote, a girl should not expect special privileges because of her sex, but neither should she adjust to prejudice and discrimination. Page 452. And that is the end of the book proper, Next week, I am still going to be covering a couple of pieces of the book, but it's the epilogue written by Fredan herself, but I believe it was written 10 years later, 10 years after the publishing. Um, And then there's a young woman who read her mother's copy, I believe 40 years after. So now we're in a little bit more recent times, but I do want to cover a couple of those last pieces that were included in my version of the book anyway, um, in my edition. Uh, But like I said, that's it for the main 14 chapters, (laughs) the main crux of the book. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, I hope you learned something. <laughs> um, but I know most of my Brookworms are already quite educated and that is why you're here. Uh, so if you're interested at all, there's still a chock full more of, of book for you to go check out. So if you feel like you maybe want to check it out, but at first you were a little bit daunted by the whole idea, you know, definitely give it a read. Um, check out the audiobook. I don't, I'm sure there is one. (laughs) Um, You know what? I'm going to look that up. I'm going to see if there's an audiobook. And if there is, I will link it. If it's through Amazon or Audible or something, I will link it onto the blog for this week. (sighs) But that's it. (laughs) We're done with the Feminine Mystique. I'm kind of sad. And like I said, next week is our last episode of this. So I'm really sad about that. But I am looking forward to my guest host. Thank you, Victoria. I'm looking forward to recording with you. Um, I hope you guys have a great rest of your weekend, and I will see you all next week. Have a good one.